0: You'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as we continue our way through the book of Matthew, as we continue to look at the life of Christ and all the events and circumstances that surrounded his coming. We ask that, you, Father, you would give to us an understanding of, of what is going on, that you would help us, Father, to be able to see the life of Christ clearly. Father, the scriptures teaches us that Jesus came to reveal to us who the Father is. We pray, Father, you would help us to see you through Christ. We ask, Lord, that our understanding would not only be enlightened and enlarged, but Lord, that our knowledge of you will be deepened, that along with that, Father, our commitment to you would become stronger. That, Father, we may again live in light of your word, live in obedience to what you've said. The Father, we may reap the joys of a wonderful relationship with you that has been uh, given to us by your Son, Christ. So we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 3. Verses 1 and following. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, All Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Last week, remember, we just uh, kind of mentioned briefly about the word repent, because it's part of John's, the main part of John's message, uh, where he is compelling the people to repent. Again, that doesn't mean that one feels sorry for their sins, but rather it's a, a change of mind. It's more than that. It's more robust than that. But we want to make sure that we get away from the idea that somehow that if someone is may be sorrowful for their sin, that that always equates to repentance. I do believe that sorrow may accompany true repentance, but just because there's sorrow by itself does not necessarily mean that repentance is taking place. Uh, repentance is always much more than that. You, you, you can see the results of repentance uh, in the behavior and in the thinking and the speech of the individual. And so here what is happening is, is John is preaching this message of repentance So as we move on, we have a description of John. Verse 4 says, John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So camel's hair was woven into a very coarse cloth by those who were poor and could not afford wool garments. Uh, And so I think part of the description here is to help us to recognize that John the Baptizer, which is probably the better way to refer to him, is purposely and also by necessity identifying with the poor. He's not identifying with the rich and well-to-do. Again, remember that just to be rich or wealthy by itself is not evil. It's not not a bad thing. Uh, Our attitude towards our money, the way that we use it, all those things come into play. But we do know during this time when John is on the scene that many of those who are religious teachers, a great number of the Sadducees, a good number of the Pharisees, as a result of their position, uh, as a result of how they were viewed uh, in Jewish society, uh, were well-to-do. Uh, there may have been varying degrees of wealth, uh, but it was rare for, for them to be poor. Uh, they, they made a good living. So John is is contrasting himself with, with that attitude, with that arena. He wants to set himself apart from them, in every way. And by doing so, uh, he, wa- he wants to put the emphasis on his message. It, there, there can't be an emphasis on what he has or what he possesses or what he's getting from people because he's not getting anything from them. It's not about his wealth. He's, he's living very simply, very poorly in this way. And so again, that's normally done to bring uh, a greater emphasis to the message. Uh, the rich could afford ornate waistbands uh, if you wore a leather belt, that was another indication that you were poor. It also mentions that he ate locusts. Uh, just so you know, in the book of Leviticus, there are four species of locusts you can eat. Now, I've never had locusts. Um, I don't know if you've had locusts. Uh, I have had uh, bees. Um, it's a, When I was a very, very young man in elementary school, I was friends with this little Japanese girl whose mother made chocolate-covered baby bees. It was really good. Just so you know what it tasted like, it's like eating a Nestle's Crunch Bar, except it's lighter. Uh, And um, you don't really know that you're eating an insect unless you're pulling a wing or a leg out of your teeth, and then you know. But it's not, you know, I know it sounds gross, it's not. I think the chocolate goes a long way in making it very nice, but uh, nonetheless... Uh, you can eat locusts. In fact, let me read to you from verses uh, 20 through 23 out of Leviticus 11. It says, All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. But all other flying insects, which have four feet, shall be an abomination to you. In the NIV, it makes it a, a little clearer for us, anyway, to understand what he's talking about. He says, "Of these, you may eat any kind of locust, Katydid, cricket, or grasshopper." Uh, so that's kind of that's the kind of insects that he's that he's talking about there. So locust, once again, once again, was the food for the poor. Uh, the Bedouins, uh, even to this day, cook and eat them. Uh, I think it's important to cook the insects uh, to get rid of whatever they may be carrying around with them. Uh, but again, that, that was not an uncommon thing. So he wasn't a spectacle because he was eating locusts. We might think that, oh, man, this crazy guy eats locusts. Well, back then, a lot of people ate locusts, so that wasn't really an unusual thing. It says that he ate wild honey, basically honey from wild bees. And so the main point of all of that is that John was living outside of the normal economic framework of the country, Uh, And because of that, he wasn't really dependent uh, upon anyone else. He could be totally devoted to the task uh, that he had at hand. And he was was very much devoted to that. So that's why we read then in verse 5, it says this, "...then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins." So for an individual who's maybe reading the Bible for the first time, or individuals who are not really all that familiar with Christianity, or those who are kind of familiar with Christianity but they don't like our language, uh, the main word being sins. So you have a lot of individuals who've heard other people complain about that, uh, and they don't like the word sins. Uh, They will take just that word and accuse Christians of being maybe judgmental. Along with that term, they'll say that we maybe were prejudiced or bigoted because of the kinds of things that we call sins. Uh, but sins is a, and, and sin itself, that's a very important word in the scripture. It's something that it's a concept we can't let go of. Uh, we need to understand it and we need to talk about it. Even though our society doesn't like that word, that doesn't really matter. Uh, we need, it's just the best word to use uh, because of the weight of that word and because of the meaning of that word. So again, we live in an age when many people actually don't even know what sin is. Uh, You would be amazed how many people that I've talked to who will openly declare they have never sinned. I've talked to inmates in jail who will say categorically they've never sinned. Now for many of them, they're not saying they've never done anything wrong. They just believe that sin is a special category. So for them, uh, a sin would be robbing a bank, a sin would be committing adultery, a sin would be selling children drugs. So they think of a, of, a, of a bigger, obvious wrongdoing that perhaps harms others, and in their mind, that's sin. They've not done those things, therefore they've not sinned. It could be that they don't even have anything particular in mind. They just believe that they're not bad enough to deserve the wrath of God or punishment or to go to hell, whatever it is that they understand you know, that we're trying to communicate what we're talking about. In their mind, they don't fit in that category. They're able to justify what they've done wrong, or maybe they'll say that, or maybe they believe or feel that what they've done isn't that bad because they know of many others who've done much worse. And so as a result of that, they may say that they have not sinned. So that's why then, if you're ever talking to an individual about that, whether they admit that they have sinned or not sinned, Uh, If you are sharing the scripture or you're doing maybe a little Bible study or what have you, it's important to stop the first time the word sin comes up and discuss it with them. Make sure they have an understanding of what sin is so they they understand that they are in that category. Uh, You want want to make sure that that they know that you consider yourself in the category. That's kind of like an icebreaker. In other words, once you talk about the fact that you are a sinner, that you have sinned, and that you need to be saved from your sins, then they know that you're not, at least from your stance, you're not only accusing them or looking down on them or condemning them as somehow your superior. You're admitting that you're all in the same group, and therefore you are guilty um, of, of violating the law of God, because that's what sin is. Sin is a violation of Scripture. It is a transgression of the law of God. Remember once again that when it comes to the Bible and to the commands of God, the Bible is not a book that is just for Christians, This is God's revelation to mankind because God is the one who created us. All of us, believer and non-believer, are beholding to God. We owe him our life. He upholds our life by his his will. We're able to breathe because he wills it. Uh, Everyone is accountable to God. So the Bible is not a list of commands only for believers. All men will be judged by what the word of God says. And what we know for a fact is that all men, including ourselves, are in violation of the law of God. Even as believers, we know there are times that we still violate the law of God. Thus, our ongoing need for Christ. And so we want to make sure that we are communicating that um, to those that we talk to. You will notice that, and we may not have every single thing that John is saying here, because it's just kind of giving us a little brief thing of his message But it is true though that the individuals who are hearing John's message already understood what sin was. So he would not have to explain that to them. They were very clear on sin and that all men have sinned and and, you know that kind of thing. But John the Baptist was still, or John the Baptist was still calling them to repentance. So again, sin is a violation of scripture. It's the transgression of the law that God has given his people, uh, the law he's given us to help us to, to live our life so that we can have a life that is holy and pleasing to God and a life that is going to be pleasant and joyful. In other words, we want to also remind others, maybe remind ourselves, that the law that God gives, God is not giving that law because he's a cosmic killjoy. It's not because he just wants to be the boss and orders around. That what he's given to us in his word is to enhance life. Remember that there is the curse of sin. Remember that we've all been affected by the curse of sin. Not only are we condemned, and not only do we think evil thoughts, we don't even know how to think. And so we need the Word of God to guide and direct us. And so, again, it's been given to us so that we can have, uh, I, don't, I almost said our best life now, but that sounds like a, like a heretical book that's out there by a heretical preacher. But the idea is so we can have at least the best possible life now through Christ, even though our best life is coming, coming later. But we want to make sure people understand because many individuals just make an assumption That the Bible is a a book with a bunch of rules uh, to prevent you from having fun. To prevent you from being able to live maybe a full and satisfying life. So we want to, once again, be able to explain to them that that's not the case at all. That all of these rules and laws, which we need because man is naturally and inherently evil, we need these things so we know how to treat each other. So we know how to talk to each other. So we know how to get along. So we know how to... So, we know how to uh, work things out. Um, and so, that's important. Uh, hundreds of years ago, two or three hundred years ago, there was a time called the Age of Enlightenment. And that's really when the notion of moral relativism began to come into play. And through the years, it's continued to really have a, a kind of put a stranglehold on primarily Western societies, but not only on Western societies, because our influence um, is kind uh, kind of spreading. But basically what the idea is, is that the concept of sin is viewed as being irrelevant. Now, the greatest problem with that idea is not that the world thinks that way, because we expect the world to think that way. The problem is, is that the world's been able to influence the church to think that way. And that's become a problem. In their view, uh, there's, there's no sin. There's just sickness, misfortune, mistakes. Uh, maybe someone's just trying to work out the problems of their environment. Maybe it was the environment they were raised in or the environment they're living in. Uh, maybe they believe that their problems are hereditary. Maybe they believe their problems are biological. Uh, others might even uh, throw in some other words, like they believe it's because of fate or because of karma. Uh, but in the end, the main idea is that man is somehow not responsible or he's less responsible for the wrong that he does. And if man is not responsible or less responsible, then man doesn't really need to be saved. That, that, that's the idea. He does. I, some people think, well, I don't need to be saved. I've not really done anything bad enough to, to go to hell, so what do I need to be saved from? So that's, again, why it's important for us to discuss with individuals what sin is, so they can understand that. Now remember that when you're doing that, just as kind of a side note, it's not your responsibility to convict an individual of sin. It's not your responsibility to make them feel guilty. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We present the truth. Now, we don't want to downplay it and act as if it's just silliness or if it's not a big deal. We don't don't do that. But you don't have to talk angrily to them. Or somehow, you know, be in a certain mood so they can grasp the seriousness of this. Just be serious as you explain it. Make sure you put yourself in the same boat and ask God the Holy Spirit to do his job to convict the world of sin. That's what, that's what God the Holy Spirit does. He'll do, a, he'll do a much better job than we ever could. So never get hung up with this idea that somehow it's your responsibility to make people feel guilty so they then will feel their need for Christ. Leave that to God. We just need to present the gospel to them as best we can, and hopefully the longer we're believers, the better we'll be able to do that. Uh, And so, again, when John then gives this message, the message that he's giving here is not irrelevant for today. it's, It's a universal message that is always true because it's based on universal truths. So again, the idea, so, so in our society today, and, and even though there may have been some who are beginning to lean that way back in the days of John, sin is, is acknowledged by some to exist, but again, it's defined by the culture, and so therefore, again, we have cultural relativism, and so we've seen this change. Just, just you know, one of the, the big areas of debate that we have in politics, in our culture, uh, still is, because it's not been settled, and it's not going to be settled for a while, is homosexuality. That used to be on a regular basis referred to as being sinful. Because it is. And that's because God has identified that as being sinful. Um, It's not about if an individual is supposedly born that way or not. Uh, We can get into that discussion, but that doesn't matter. Remember, we're all born with a natural tendency to do what? Sin. That's just one of them. And so we don't have to make that the emphasis. The emphasis is that we are sinners and we're guilty before God. Uh, And so we want to make sure that we don't... um, uh, move in that direction because again in our society they don't want to call that a sin they're to say it's a lifestyle choice or the many other things that they try to uh, in many of the labels they try to use to refer to that uh, uh, I believe that this was uh, Matthew Henry who said this um, he said much of the Bible is concerned with explaining what sin is what the penalty for sinning is and how we can avoid that penalty and have our sins forgiven and how we can live a holy life free from the power of sin, pleasing to God and to ourselves. And so that's what we, that's what we need to remember as we share the gospel. So back in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, it says this, But when he saw, this is John the baptizer, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with with unquenchable fire. So let's kind of take a note of what's going on here. Look at the things with and making sure we don't overlook as to what's going on because the details of this passage are going to really help us a great deal in really getting a full picture of what's going on. First of all, in verse 5, uh, which we've already read, remember again it states that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. So there's, a, there's, there's people from all over the place that are coming out. They've heard of John. they heard of his preaching. they heard of his baptizing. They're coming out to hear what he has to say. Number two, it then mentions in uh, verse 7 that he saw many of uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They, they were coming out there as well. Now, they weren't coming to be baptized, but they were coming out and they were looking at, they were observing to see what was going on. And we're going to explain uh, that now because that is very important. There were many of these that took place in the history of Israel. And we see two of them taking place here with John the baptizer and we'll see this also with, with uh, Jesus himself. And that is that whenever there was any kind of significant spiritual movement, and in particular, when I say movement, I don't mean like another religion. Uh, the Jews didn't tolerate that. Uh, that kind of thing didn't go on. It never really. You know, if anybody was trying to teach a different religion, that just wouldn't catch on. Uh, they were they were very committed uh, to to their beliefs and to their traditions, and and so much so that that really wasn't going to be able to take root. However. Uh, they could be misled in what they believed about the Old Testament, the Messiah, those things. And so they were very interested in any kind of messianic movement. And the reason for that is because they were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They were in bondage to Rome. Uh, they, were, they were handcuffed and handicapped in a lot of ways. Uh, they had, this had been the situation for a long time. Even though they had some freedoms, they didn't have absolute freedom in the way, that they, in the way they would like to live. And so there was a problem and so there was, there was kind of a, uh, uh, an edge to the, to the people. They were, they were looking. They were wanting a reason. They were wanting a person to come along. They could rally behind with this belief that somehow they could throw off Rome. Uh, when you kind of take a step back and look at the position they were in, this very tiny nation, and the unbelievable power of Rome, that was just foolishness uh, to even think that they could throw off the power of Rome. But there was that belief that they could that at least they could stir up enough trouble that maybe Rome would get tired of them and leave them alone. That wasn't going to happen, but, you know, that was kind of the prevailing mood and thought of the time. So, so you have the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is, is the ruling elders of Israel. Uh, the Sanhedrin was, was made up of Pharisees and, and some Sadducees, mostly Pharisees of varying degrees. Uh, and th- these were the individuals that ruled Israel. And so when there was, and remember that for Israel, everything was religious. Everything was looked at in a religious context. Even all of their, their civil matters were, were tied to the Old Testament and tied to obeying God. God had said things about every aspect of their life. So when there was some kind of a movement that was going on that that was uh, either talking about the Messiah or maybe Uh, an individual was saying he was the Messiah, or maybe others were saying that this is the Messiah, they would want to go and check it out to see what was going on, because they were going to have to make a declaration on whatever that movement was. The way that Israel was set up, at least voluntarily, is that whenever there was any kind of a, a religious movement, no matter what the people were thinking, they would not declare on their own, if it was a good or a bad thing, until there was an official statement by the Sanhedrin. So if the Sanhedrin said, we've checked this out, it's no good, then the people would turn, then most of the people would turn away. You always have a few that may not, maybe a small band of people, but basically, as, as, as the nation will go, that's what they will be waiting for. What, what did the Sanhedrin think? So they had developed a, a system of how to deal with these kinds of things. So John... Uh, um, because of what he's doing, because of his popularity, because of, of this thing he's stirring up, uh, they were going to begin to investigate John to see what this is all about. So you have a couple of stages to this investigation. So the first one is there would be a delegation that would be sent out from the Sanhedrin. It would be a delegation made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, and they would be tasked by the Sanhedrin to, go, to officially go to wherever this is going on. So for this, they would look, they would try to find where John the baptizer is And they would then observe, and they would see what was going on. They would listen to the message. They would would listen to what's being said. They would listen to what others were saying. And they would watch to see what the individual was doing. They They would not ask any questions. They would make no comments. They would make no statements. They were simply there to make these observations, in a sense, take notes. And then they would go back, and they would make a report or give a report to the Sanhedrin. When they gave this report, the Sanhedrin then would have to make a decision. The Sanhedrin might say, you know what? Whatever's going on here is just totally insignificant. Just forget about it. And so they would just kind of basically poo-poo the idea. Word would get out, and that would be the end of it. The, 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 The individual involved in the movement may still be trying to do things, but they would just ignore it. If anybody asked about it, they'd say, yeah, we've checked it out. It's not of God. That was really all that they needed to say, and that was over. If, though, they believed that the movement was going to be significant, or maybe it was already significant in in many different ways, whether it's maybe it's the uniqueness of the message, maybe the uniqueness of the individual, uh, maybe by the numbers of people that are coming out. There's a lot of factors that would go into that. Um, Then what they would do is they would send out a second delegation. Now, the second delegation may be the same guys that were in the first delegation, but the idea was is they would then go out back to, in this case, they would go out back to John the Baptizer And in this official part, they would then begin to ask questions. They would raise objections. They might do so to John himself. Uh, They may do so with his followers. Uh, But they're going to do a deeper analysis of what's going on. And in this case, we're going to see um, what's going to happen. So we'll, we'll come back to that then in just a moment. But basically what they're looking for is they're looking for evidence so then the delegate, not the delegation but the Sanhedrin they would be able to make a decision as to is this a work of God and a messianic movement maybe even have they identified the Messiah is the person the Messiah and they would be able to declare yes this person is and why or no he isn't and why they would always have to be able to say why and that's why this delegation would be going out then the second time so what, what do we see once again verse 5 Then at Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. However, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. So I already mentioned this. The Pharisees and Sadducees are there. They're coming to his baptism. Uh, They're not coming to be baptized. They were not there to repent. So John addresses them and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So when John says this, remember that John would have been raised like many other individuals, many other Jewish uh, boys at that time. Uh, We do know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb. But from the time that he was uh, somewhere between the age of four and six, he would have initially gone to school, like they all went to school. They would have gone to school, and for the first several years of schooling, like the first, uh, I think it's at least the first five, maybe even the first seven, depending on what age they start. But when they start school, they do not study geography, history, they don't study any of those things. They study one thing the Old Testament. That's all they study. They work on memorizing it, and the rabbi who's leading the school would teach its meaning. They would do that every day uh, throughout the school year. And they would do that until they got somewhere between the ages of 10 and 12. And the reason for that, the the way that the Jews viewed the schooling of their children is this. It doesn't matter if you're going to be a carpenter or if you're going to be a politician or if you're going to be a rabbi. For you to be uh, all that God would have you to be in that profession, you needed to be a man or a woman, primarily it was boys, be a man of character. And that comes from knowing the word of God. And so they believe that was the foundation and then when, and so by then learning that, uh, afterwards, when they finished the first segment of schooling, it would then be decided what you would do. Those who were the gifted students that maybe the rabbi believed would be a good Pharisee or maybe a good rabbi, uh, they would have them remain at school for the next several years of training and discipleship. Uh, those who, who were just what we would call just regular students would then be sent back home. Uh, and they would then usually learn the trade of their father, whether it was a carpenter or a farmer or what have you, because they would then at that point in time be be prepared as a man, knowing what, knowing good from evil, knowing what the scripture says, they have the character now it 's time to learn the skill to be able to provide for your family and make a contribution to society. So John would have been raised in that way, so he would know the Old Testament, and he would be very much aware because he's, you know he has the holy spirit he 's able to think spiritually, he has the The mind of God, we would say it that way. And so he was aware of the uh, contradictions in the lives of many Pharisees. All the Pharisees weren't that way. All Pharisees weren't bad. But a good number of them were kind of, you know, it's the status quo, the good old boy system. Uh, You know, they, they were playing games, really. They wouldn't say it that way, but they were playing games with the word of God. And as they were kind of building what we call fence laws around the law to prevent people from breaking the law of Moses, they were still finding loopholes and ways around that. So they could conduct business and they could do all kinds of things uh, and really violate the law of God, but it would appear that they weren't. They were appearing to be uh, very, very holy in the way they lived. One of the things they did, I know some of you are familiar with this, we've talked about this before, uh, but there was a practice where you could stand outside of your home uh, I'm not sure what kind of ceremony would be would go along with this. I'm not sure it would be a very elaborate one. But you could stand outside your home, and you would wave your hand, and you would say Korban. And what that meant was, is everything you owned was now uh, dedicated to the temple. Now, the way they worked it is, is because all of it's dedicated to the temple, you could still use all of it yourself while you're alive. However, because it was dedicated to the temple they would teach that you didn't have a right to use any of those resources to help others, whether it's your parents or anyone else. Why? Oh, it's dedicated to the temple. So the scenario would be this. Let's say that you, uh, you say Corban outside your home. Uh, your parents are in a bad way. They come and, and they, they need your help. Maybe even move in. And you would say, oh, if I'd only known, I can't help you. It's all been dedicated to the temple. And people were so believing of this that they would say, so let's just say it's me, they would say, look at how much Bob loves God. He's even willing to allow his parents to live in the street. Now, is that backwards or what? That's backwards. all right. But, that's, but, that they, but they had everybody fooled. And so the belief was is that that individual was truly committed to God. And so that would also mean that his kids didn't get an inheritance either because it was all going to the temple. Now, I'm sure someone forgot a way how to get out of that, but I haven't come across that yet, so I can't explain how that works. But that was the idea. Uh, And so, again, John stands in not only contrast to this, but that's why he then says what he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath wrath to come? Now, when he uses the statement, the wrath to come, uh, because this is a Jewish audience, they were very familiar with that term. Uh, For them, that was basically the common teaching on what's called the Day of Jehovah or the Day of the Lord. Uh, And so we will talk a little more about that in a few months when we come across some things that are more pertinent to that. But they would have recognized already because John never explains what he means by that. uh, But they would have understood what he meant and and it refers to that. In fact, there's a a little article there in the bulletin that kind of give you a head start uh, on the Day of the Lord and and some things about that that kind of help you put that into context. So then in verse 9, it says this, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So why would they make that statement? Why would they say, We have Abraham as our father? Well, that's because they understand the wrath to come. That's God's judgment. In a nutshell, that's what that is. And And so basically John is saying, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Meaning God's judgment's coming on you. They don't believe that. They don't believe God's judgment's coming on them. And But the reason they would give would be this statement. We have Abraham as our father. Now to us, we're like, well, what kind of a state? How does that get them out of the judgment of God? Well, this is how it gets out. Pharisaic theology. There was a concept that was referred to as zikhat avat. Which simply means the merits of the Father. It taught that any descendant of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that means if you were Jewish, was protected from divine punishment simply by the merits of the fathers. In other words, because of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If I'm Jewish, I am protected from divine judgment because of their merits. And so you can already see that uh, that kind of gives the seeds for a lot of ways that people think about atonement or or how we find a way to reconcile ourselves to God. So again, they believed their heritage would bring protection from God since judgment comes on the nations and not the people of Abraham. In fact, there was a, you'll probably hear me say this again, I've said it before, but they actually taught that Abraham himself sat outside of the gate of Hades. And the reason why he sat out there was just in case some unsuspecting Jew living his life would begin to fall into sin and descend towards Hades and they believe Abraham would reach out and snatch him. They wouldn't go there because they were Jewish. That was the Zikhat or Zikhat Avat is what they were believing. So that's why John then immediately takes away that excuse. He knows they're thinking that and he says, so don't think to yourself and we have Abraham as a father, because that doesn't mean anything, because God is able to raise up children from the stones. So he's letting them know that they are separated because of their sin, there's no way to get out of this. God is not going to overlook this, uh, or pretend that what they have done is not worthy of his judgment. So if you go back then to, uh, if you turn the Bibles to Luke 3 for a moment, um, we want to look back at the delegation and what they observed and what they heard. And uh, we'll go through this uh, quickly. I don't want to dwell on um, any of the Gospels outside of Matthew, uh, but there are moments in time where we need to do a little bit of filling in the gap. So Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Um, so, so you have the Pharisees and Sadducees of the delegation. They're watching, they're listening, and this is what they see. So verse 10. So the people asked to him, asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. So we have a group of individuals, just regular people, and John's been teaching repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when John says repent, these people say, what do we do? In other words, they want to repent, what do we do? So then John answers and basically tells them to, I guess you would say, kind of go against what's natural. So if you have two tunics, you need to give one of them to someone who doesn't have. So who's in need? Give them one of your tunics. Give it away. If someone, has, if someone doesn't have food, um, uh, do the same thing. In other words, be kind. Treat them that way. That's, he, he deals with that aspect. Remember that John is not preaching to them salvation. Salvation comes through belief in the Messiah. They are to prepare themselves to receive the message to prepare themselves to receive the one that John's going to point out. And again, remember, we've mentioned before, sin can be blinding. And so one of the ways to uh, kind of uh, enable us to be able to judge correctly and see things, understand things well, is to move away from our sinful behavior and begin to do what's right. And so that's what John tells them to do. Then in verse 12, we have another group. It says, then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Uh, And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Now you've heard me explain this before when it comes to tax collectors. Basically the way that it uh, worked is Rome only taxed non-citizens, which is a great principle. But anyway, uh, (laughs) number two, you would have very wealthy Romans who would bid on that position. Very wealthy Romans would bid on the position of, and yet all kinds of tax collectors, but they would bid on that position. And so they would then give this amount of money to Rome to have that title. Then what they would do is they would then uh, look then for others to be collectors for them. And they would tell them, okay, you have to, you know, if they're crossing a bridge, you have to charge this, month, this much. You know, if they're going to use the town in this way, you have to, you know, it would set up the charges. And so they would then hire these individuals out. And so you had many individuals who were Jewish individuals who would be a way to make a living to be a tax collector for these uh, individuals who had bid on the right to be a tax collector. Now, the way that a tax collector made his money is, uh, so if, if I'm a tax collector and, I, and I'm in charge of the bridge, uh, and, and my master basically says you need to charge $10 per wagon that goes over, I would, you know, he'd say you, do, you can charge 12 you make $2, I get the $10, everybody's happy. Now, because the Roman citizen had, would bid on this job, if an individual refused, I would just let them know. They would then let the Roman army know, and the Roman garrison would basically enforce the law. I wouldn't have to do that. However, if you are a Jewish man and you're collecting taxes from your own people, you'd be viewed as a traitor. And also, the man if I'm this Jewish man, my master, my boss, doesn't care what I charge. He just wants $10 a wagon. So if I charge $20, who's to say? As long as he gets $10 a wagon. If I see you coming along and you're wealthy, it's now, it's $25 today. You've got to pay it. You don't have a choice. And these tax collectors were known as cheats, trying to abuse the system to become wealthy. And many of them did. And so these tax collectors then, and, and I believe these would be Jewish individuals, I don't see Gentiles running out to the desert to listen to John the Baptizer. So these Jewish tax collectors said, What should we do? And what does he say? Collect no more than what is appointed. So now we're back to me charging you twelve dollars for the bridge. My boss has said, charge twelve, I get ten, you get two, you'll be able to make a living. That's what I have to do. That's what he tells them to do. Stop being greedy, do what's right. Then we have a third group. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? Who would these soldiers be? Well, remember that when when Rome would would take over a, a, a country or a region, many times they would basically draft young men into their army. You also would have individuals who would hire themselves out as mercenaries. And so these are probably, and I believe this would be correct, these then would be, these aren't just like Latin soldiers. I believe these are Jewish soldiers, these are Jewish mercenaries. They've hired themselves out to Rome, and so they're in the Roman army. And so because of they're in the Roman army, they have a lot of, there's a lot of rights and privileges that go along with that. Uh, again, because they are an occupying force, even though you're Jewish and the Romans are occupying your homeland, because you're part of the army, you can pretty much say what you want to say. You can go to someone's house... And you can knock on the door and say, basically, I'm hungry, and my buddy's, hung- my buddy's hungry. Um, we, we need to eat. They may say, well, we're poor. We only have enough for our family. doesn't matter. They say, hand it over. you got to hand it over. And so what does he say to them? He says to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Uh, being a Roman soldier also meant that you could abuse non-citizens. So if you're in a bad mood, let's say you wake up one morning and you have a fight with your wife, and so you're not real happy, and you don't have a dog to kick. Uh, you go out into the village, and you see some, some uh, you know, they're in a, villi- a Jewish village. You see some Jewish men walking uh, down the, the, uh, the alleyway there, and they're laughing, having a good time. Well, that's pretty upsetting. I just had a fight. Why are they laughing? Walk up to them and just, boom, hit them. Or I might say, you know what? It looks like you're carrying a bag of gold. I need that. You give me that gold, or I'm going to bust you up. I mean, that they would become bullies. And so what is John the Baptist say? He says, look, don't intimidate anyone. Don't accuse anyone falsely and be content. So they were paid by Rome. He said, be content with your wages. So here he's talking about these works of repentance. This reveals that you've, you're turning your heart uh, back to the God of your people, that you want to live in obedience to what he says. You need to do the right thing. And the way that you treat others uh, is very important to God. Man is made in the image of God, and this is what you need to do. And so John was teaching the people to do what was contrary to their nature to do. And so then, when these Sadducees and Pharisees, this delegation, when they see all of this, it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, Now as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, Meaning, remember the word Christ is the anointed one? The Hebrew word for the anointed one is Messiah. So the people are, so so the Pharisees and Sadducees are watching, they're listening to what people are saying, and people are asking themselves when they are, when they're responding to John the Baptizer, when they're hearing his message, when they're following through on what he's telling them to do, they are now thinking through this and saying, is this the Messiah? Is he the Messiah or is he not the Messiah? Then John goes on and tells us in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John is aware of what they're thinking. What does he say? What does he do? He distinguishes himself from the Messiah. He's not caught up in all of this to where he gets a big head and says, yeah, well, maybe I am. He's clear on who he is and what he's about. And so he distinguishes himself from the Messiah. He's not there to gain popularity and to be the man. He's there to point to the man, which is Christ. And so he wants to distinguish himself from the one who has come. So he states here, that he is unworthy to carry the sandals of the Messiah. In fact, uh, he's, it says he's unworthy to even untie them. When he makes that statement, again, his Jewish audience was very familiar with that idea, that, that when it came to slaves and to servants, you might have your servant or your personal servant carry your sandals, but when it comes to untying your, your sandals, kneeling down in the dirt and untying your, uh, your sandals, the lowest slave in your household would be the one who would do that. So what John is doing is stating that the Messiah, when he comes, no matter what they're thinking, and he knows what they're thinking about him. They think, he's, they think this guy's the greatest thing since sliced bread, if they have sliced bread back then. And he, he wants them to know that he is truly nothing compared to the Messiah. So what he is saying is, I'm even unworthy in anyone's household being the lowest slave to even untie his sandals. So he's making it clear as to who he is. You know, the, the humility that's there is genuine. You know, sometimes as believers, we, we, we have to, to look out for our ego at times. You may have been successful in, in helping someone to come to Christ or grow in Christ. And sometimes if, 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 if God uses you maybe a great deal in the lives of several people or in someone, you know, there could be a temptation to kind of start thinking that you're something. And we just need to remember that we, we don't save anybody. Jesus does all the saving. We don't convict anybody. Jesus does all of that. It doesn't mean that if somebody compliments you or thanks you that you have to say, oh, no, I'm just a worm. You know, don't. sometimes it's kind of that backwards way of getting, getting praise. You can just say thank you and praise the Lord for that. But what we have to be careful of is that we make it about us. Because it's never about us. It's always about him in a, in a very real in a genuine way, it's about him. And John understands that from the very get-go. Because remember, he's out there. Jesus still isn't on the scene yet. And all these people are coming to hear him. He, he's gaining power by his popularity. That can easily feed the ego. And he immediately puts all that to rest by what he says. John also distinguishes between his baptism and the baptism of the Messiah. John's baptism was with water. The Messiah's baptism would be with the Holy Spirit. Again, where he says this, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wheat here represents those who will believe in the Messiah and are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Those who believe in the Messiah are those who are becoming believers. He's, again, he's talking to Jewish individuals, but the idea is they will become believers because they believe in the Messiah and they will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we'll explain more of that. It'll be probably a year uh, when we get there. But the idea is, is that we'll understand uh, then why this is such a big deal uh, for them and really an unusual thing that he says to them. But they are the ones that he will gather into his barn, um, Many believe that that's a reference to the messianic kingdom because the word that's used, uh, whether it is specifically or not, uh, the bottom line is, is that he gathers them together to himself. But the chaff does represent unbelievers. This is really the first hint that a Jewish person can die without salvation, that a Jewish person may, is going to be, suffer the judgment of God because, remember, their belief was that because they were children of Abraham, they were, they were spared that automatically. Here John, you know, Jesus makes it even clearer, but here there's this first hint that the chaff, which is Jewish unbelievers who reject the Messiah, are baptized in fire because it's the fire of judgment. It is the unquenchable fire of judgment. So what we need to realize is what John's message was to them, and really the Bible message to us is the same. Everyone is going to undergo a baptism. We're either going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit or by fire. And the way they were baptized by the Spirit is by the grace of God. By believing in Christ and what Christ has come, what Christ came to do for us. And what we believe that the Scripture teaches us, when we place our faith in Christ, when God saves us, we are at that moment um, indwelt on a permanent basis by the Holy Spirit of God. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the family of God. And He resides in us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day that He comes again. And we can rejoice in that. Remember that for all those that we know and love that are unbelievers, they will be baptized too, Too, but the baptism that awaits them is the baptism of God's judgment. The idea is that they will be fully immersed under the judgment of God. And we need to remember that's a very real thing and pray that God would be merciful to them, that God would open their eyes, they would recognize their need. And that goes back then to the very beginning, that when we're explaining sin, we even pray that God would help them to recognize and to understand clearly that they are sinners just as we are, but that they are under the judgment of God and they will remain under the judgment of God until they come to Christ uh, by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us and your kindness. We thank you, Father, again for uh, the story that we read concerning John the baptizer and, and his message and what he came to do. We thank you, Father, for really the clarity of his message, and we pray that we would take again all these things to heart. We pray, Lord, that not only would we ourselves be encouraged by what we're reading, but, Father, again, that this would give to us really ammunition, give to us information that we may be able to explain to others the details of your word as we explain to them the gospel of Christ and why it's necessary to understand it and to know it and to believe it. Thank you, Father, for saving us. Thank you, Father, for the indwelling spirit of, of God living in each one of us that are believers. And we do pray for those who may not know Christ. And we pray, Lord, they would recognize that there is a baptism that awaits them, but it's a baptism that nobody wants, but a baptism that's been experienced by Christ for all those who will believe on the cross. And again, we thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay.